Loving Liberty Network. Welcome to the Liberty Mom Show. The Liberty Moms are the defenders of the home front. We are the real secretaries of defense for our children, our families, and our communities. This is Delaine England. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have a great show for you. I hope you really enjoy it. Before we get started, I just wanted you to put on your calendar September 17th, 18th and 19th. September 17th was when the founders signed the Constitution. We have a great event for you. We would love you to attend and we'll tell you more about it at the end, towards the end of the show. Right now, we are so happy to have a guest with us. It is gubernatorial candidate, Thomas Wright. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you for having me, Delane. Thank you. How are things going? Going really well. Thank you. It's always fun to talk to people about liberty and freedom and be able to share my perspectives as a candidate. So thank you for having me on. Thank you. And if you don't mind me saying so, and even if you do, we really need a governor in the state of Utah, in every state across this nation, who understands liberty, understands the proper role of government. And so we are at this time, we have the opportunity to elect a new governor. And that is really what we're looking for. So we're going to just jump right, dive right in because time is ticking. So as the governor of Utah, what would you do to handle this COVID-19 situation that we're enduring right now? Well, look, COVID-19 hit us out of nowhere. Nobody saw this coming. This is a really difficult time in our state and country's history. Uh, it's a very infectious disease. Um, you know, we can all agree that it's taken a lot of human life and that it's it's disrupted our economy, it's disrupted the way we do business. Um, it's pointed out the need to defend our constitutional freedoms and liberties, and it's given us an opportunity to reevaluate the way we work, the way we commute, the way we educate our children, the way we deliver higher education. So it's been a really difficult time. There's a lot of loneliness, there's a lot of mental health challenges associated with it. A lot of people have lost their jobs and their businesses. A lot of businesses are really struggling. So it's just given us a chance to, to reevaluate everything, our priorities as individuals, our priorities as a society. And COVID-19, you know, will go down in the history books. Uh, and we need to make sure that we do our very best to help the people around us to get Utahns back to work and to make sure that our economy comes out better than it went in and that we continue to have the, the best state and the best country the world has ever known. Okay, but specifically... What would you do right now if you were the yeah. governor? Would you keep well, I, us yellow? Would you move us to green? What would you do? Well, I'm not into all the colors. I don't. I, I have a hard time <laughs> understanding. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a red, white, and blue guy more than I'm, I'm with you. But I, I, I will tell you that I'm the only candidate that I, I'm aware of that's put up a short-term and economic recovery plan. Economic recovery plan on its website. You can go to writeutah.com. You can click on jumpstart. You can see the plan there. I'm also the only one that wrote an educational recovery plan as an op-ed in the Deseret News. You can go there and read that. But what we need to do is we need to start by giving tax relief to our citizens. 
We have a billion dollars in rainy day funds. We've got a triple A bond rating that we should use modestly to help the state get back on its feet. And we have a lot of spending that I believe we can cut. Uh, spending that was approved before the pandemic that needs to be reallocated now to better priorities uh, given the challenges that we're facing right now. So I, I, those are the, those are the short term things. For example, I think we need to suspend the sales tax on food um, and suspend that and give tax relief to citizens right now who are really struggling. And that adds up to about $20 million a month. Uh, we can offset the, the city revenue and the local tax rate with rainy day funds. Let's give those rainy day funds back to the citizens in the form of tax relief right now when they really need it the most. Let's come up with a property tax abatement program for low and middle income families who have lost their jobs or been affected financially by the pandemic so they can stay in their homes, continue to raise their families. There's a lot of things that government can do. And finally, Delane, I'll just say, the other thing is we need to take the people who have filed for unemployment, over 150,000 people, another 5,300 today, uh, this week, have filed for unemployment. We need to retrain them and get them back into the workforce. A lot of the jobs that they had won't come back. And we've got to use our vocational schools and our system of higher education to get them back on their feet. And so those are some of the ideas that I've had as governor, and that's what I would be working on right now if I were sitting in the governor's chair. And speaking of the unemployment, we have all of our employees came back because we were shut down for two months. Our employees came back except for one. And he he said, you know what? I'm making more money on unemployment than I did with you. I'm going to sit around on my rear and wait until my unemployment expires. So I think that in itself is a very serious problem because that hurts him. And it also hurts employers as well. Well, one of the things you just brought up a really good point, and this is also in my economic recovery plan. So you're making me feel good. Uh, one of the things, one of the things I call for in that plan is a review and an audit of our unemployment insurance uh, fund and the way we're we're managing unemployment insurance. Right now, we're the state is taxing unemployment checks, and you're like, wait a minute, people, you know, we're giving them we're giving them taxpayer money to help them during a tough time, then we're taxing it. That doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. And also, when you look at it, people are disincentivized from getting a part-time job because if they get a part-time job, sometimes they get disqualified from the unemployment insurance. So the part-time job isn't enough for them to pay their bills. And so they don't take the job because they need the unemployment check. That's just silly. It's crazy. That's that's the kind of thing that government needs to, to review. And I'll just say that we've had the best economic run-up in the state's history. A CEO, a business person would have been ready for a correction like this by reviewing the unemployment insurance fund before we needed it. That's not what government does. They wait till it hits and then they scramble and try to figure it out. That's, that's what government does. And my three opponents are all from government. They're professional politicians. And so that's what they do. That's how they're trained. I'm from the private sector. You evaluate things before you need them. So you're ready when they happen. And, and I think that's a big difference between me and my opponents. Excellent. Okay, so back to, I just want to, before we leave COVID-19, I just want to ask you a couple more questions. So do you think that the health department has too big or too small or just right of a play in making the decision to shut down our economy and to govern people's lives? Well, I believe elected officials are the ones that have to make the decisions because they're the ones that are elected and they're the ones that are accountable to us. 
I don't believe in unelected judges legislating from the bench, and I don't believe in unelected bureaucrats making decisions for all society. So while this is a healthcare pandemic, and while we do need our great medical professionals and epidemiologists, and they play a very critical role in helping us determine what's happening and how to treat a pandemic, how to treat COVID, how to test COVID, we need them, they're critical. At the end of the day, the buck stops with the governor. You're the CEO in a company, the buck stops with you. Every decision that's made, you own, you have to own it. And look, in a big organization like state government, you can't know of every single thing that's going on, but you can hire the people that you trust and you can appoint the people you trust and then you can hold them accountable. And that's what you do in business, uh, but that's what you have to do in the private sector. So I appreciate our healthcare professionals, our healthcare organizational workers, people that have volunteered, but I wanna be clear, the proper role of government is to gather all of the information in a time like this, disseminate it to the public, and then let people make decisions based on that. Ooh, that sounds a lot like liberty, Thomas. <laughs> You're saying that you give the people the information and they decide how they govern their own lives? Yeah, that's that's the idea, isn't it? How unique. Yes. Yep. <laughs> that sounds very American, actually. Yep. So you're in a really unique situation right now because we, I don't, in my lifetime, I don't ever remember we having four gubernatorial candidates in the primary, four Republican gubernatorial candidates in a primary. And we can thank SB 54. So with that little snarky lead in, <laughs> I want you to tell us how you feel about SB 54. Where do you stand on that? That's a mess. And look, here's another example. This has been on the books now. SB 54 was passed in 2014. It's been on the books now, what, six years? And nobody did anything about it. This is what government does. And now it's a problem. We're in a Republican primary. There's four of us. One of us is going to win with less of a majority, probably less than a majority of the vote. And now government is suddenly it's a problem. Now we have to fix it. Why didn't they fix it before? I've been saying for years publicly that plurality was going to be a problem eventually. Nobody did anything about it. And my three opponents were all in government. Greg Hughes voted for SB 54. He was the Speaker of the House. He could have fixed it. Spencer Cox was the chief elections officer. He could have made a proposal and tried to fix it. He never even proposed anything. So this is what happens when you keep electing the same people. We've got to elect new people. We've got to elect people that come from outside of government so we can start to tackle some of the challenges before they come become problems. This is a perfect example of government thinking right here. There you go. Okay, so we're gonna okay. take a short break and we will be right back. to the Loving Liberty Network. We are so happy to have you join us. We are with Thomas Wright, one of the gubernatorial candidates, and we were just discussing SB 54 that pretty much did shot a whole bunch of holes in the caucus system and the way that we of political party chooses their candidates. So Thomas, you were saying how SB 54 is a big mess I'd like you to explain why you got signatures, which I couldn't agree more. It is a huge mess. Why you got signatures and what you plan to do about it if, as, a, as the governor, what we do. Yeah, I decided to get signatures because I didn't want to play by different rules than everybody else. 
Um, just because I gathered them doesn't mean that I liked it or that I agreed with it. But look, when you're running against career politicians that have big name ID and have built-in advantages of other elected officials endorsing them and, and helping them behind the scenes, and you have you have big donors and people that are, that, that are coming in to help them, and you're the outsider coming in, you're already at enough disadvantages. And I didn't want to be further disadvantaged by not playing by the same rules just to prove a point. The people of Utah know where I stand on this issue. I've been really clear about it. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to play by the same rules and I have no regrets in doing that, but it will help me in 2021 after I'm elected to have a serious conversation with legislative leadership and the legislature about fixing SB 54. And that's what I intend to do in the first legislative session. When I'm governor, we're going to sit all the shareholders down and we're going to come up with a clean and clear and concise path for our candidates to be nominated. I'll tell you one of the biggest challenges, Delane, in being a candidate right now is trying to explain to everyday voters how our nominating process works. I mean, trying to explain the, the paths and the convention and the signatures and why they didn't count and why did Governor Herbert change the deadline and why it, it's almost impossible. It almost consumes the whole race. We're not even talking about freedom and liberty and, and tax cuts and fiscal responsibility. And we're not talking about the things we should be talking about. So. I'm going to fix that if I'm elected, and that's one of the reasons I hope people will support me. Excellent. I do think one of the reasons that it is so consuming is because we really don't have liberty unless we get rid of SB 54, because we don't have the, the freedom to choose our candidates to represent us. And, um, and it ends up becoming who spends the most money and who has the biggest name recognition, and you don't really get to any really good candidates in. So thank you. Excellent explanation. Now, Thomas, um, you have four children. We're going to shift gears to education. Okay. Your kids are, I don't really know how old they are. They're not in elementary school. They're 13 to 20. I have two in college and two in our public schools. Okay, Here fantastic. Yep. Okay, great. So what do you plan to do about our education system? Well, that's a great question. And probably the most important question other than the pandemic and how we're going to get the economy <laughs> on track. But the public education system has been an ongoing challenge. And again, I hear my opponents all talking about it, but they've been governors and lieutenant governors and speakers of the house. And if this was all so important to them, why didn't any of this stuff happen when they were there? I mean, I sit and, and I say like, what? I mean, uh, you know, so anyway, here's what you have so to do. That's why we're in this situation we're in right now is because they did do something. Your opponent, Greg Hughes, speaker of the house, sponsored the testing for Common Core. He sponsored the Common Core testing. Yeah. So he sponsored the funding for it, I should say. So yeah, they did. That's why we're in this situation. Well, that's disappointing <laughs> because Common Core is a total disaster. Um, and so that, that's a disappointing fact about him. But I will say that I believe in local control of education. I believe in freedom and choice. And that includes homeschooling, charter schools, public schools, private schools. Parents know best what their children need. We need to allow parents to make that choice, whether it's a special needs scholarship or a special needs program. Parents need the freedom and flexibility to allow their children the, the, the educational pathway that makes the most sense to them. And so a couple things though about the public education system, because that's going to be the main educational mechanism for the state of Utah. If people want to go a different route, I've just said, I, 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 I hope they have that freedom and flexibility. And as governor, I will fight for that. But our public education system, I've just been blown away by our teachers. And what they've proved during this pandemic is they are amazing. 
And if we get out of their way and let them teach, they know how to teach and they'll never, they, they, we will never do better than just letting them teach. For example, the federal government, Common Core and No Child Left Behind, meddling in our classrooms, a one size fits all program for everyone across the country as though every student is exactly the same, will never work. It will never work as well as just letting our teachers teach in the classroom. But here's the challenge with letting teachers teach. There's a few challenges. One, we have not paid teachers well, so we've had a serious teacher shortage, which is a big problem. Number two, we have made it miserable to teach with regulation and paperwork and testing and all the, all the things that teachers have to do. It's miserable, and I hear it from them all the time. You've got to make it enjoyable for them to teach again. And third, they need more professional development. They want more professional development so they can become better teachers, and they need more support in the classroom. Uh, we have a lot of mental health challenges in our state. I'm not afraid to talk about the fact that we're rated number one in teenage suicide in this country, or uh, number one in this country, the number one state. We've got to take that seriously. We've got to provide more resources and more help. And I'll just close this by saying, what we've learned during this pandemic is that a one-size-fits-all education system isn't smart. In other words, not every child does well in the traditional classroom setting, the traditional hours. And this proves why we believe in freedom and choice in education. I had a mom tell me the other day, my son is doing so much better home, at home, online. His grades are better. He's learning better. He can focus more. He does his homework. He actually turns it in. But he wasn't doing very well in the classroom setting. And so what it shows is that students have individual needs and by custom tailoring education to meet the needs of the child, we can help them reach their potential more. It shouldn't be threatening to teachers because we need them. They're so much more than facilitators of technology. They're the driving force behind getting our kids ready to compete in a global economy. Yeah, that's really interesting because as a teacher myself, I teach history and geography and I teach the constitution. Um, I, I have found it has been very difficult for me to teach online. Most of my students can't wait to get back in the classroom, but there are those students who are just grooving on it. They love it. They, they really, really enjoy it. They like that they're more comfortable, that they're at home. They, they like, they don't mind learning through the, the video, but it, it, this is what is so, you know, we're all unique. This is what's really important is that every child is so unique and they learn differently. Mm -hmm. But I do also think we need to remember that we as people are very social and we do need that human interaction and connection. And a lot of times it depends on the home, what's happening there, because some of my students are home alone. There's no parents there. They have to get on themselves. They have to remember. Um, they, it's easy to get distracted when you just have all that much liberty to kind of do anything you want to. And so I do feel that a big part of the problem is that we, we just have such a cookie cutter system yeah. and we don't let parents and children choose their pathway that is best for them. And they're all different. Yeah. So well, thank uh, you. Now, when talking about education, one of the problems with the, the adaptive testing is the data mining. How do you feel about the data mining that's happening? Because I know as a businessman, data, data, data. Yeah, Business people, data, you know. we love data. Data is everything. Yeah, I mean, it's all about data, they say. But you know what? I, I've learned that what data has its place and you have to do data analytics. There's a couple things you have to be careful about. One, you have to make sure you're not um, intruding on people's privacy and that you're not, you're not hurting individuals by the data mining. 
Two, you have to take the data with a grain of salt. You still have to have instincts. You still have to understand the business climate or the education climate or whatever you're interpreting the data for. You can't be totally data driven. There is some intangibles to interpreting the data and making sure, but I just wanna make sure people's privacy is protected and that people feel comfortable with the data that's out there on them. And the state is always very transparent about what data is out there. And as governor, I've been uncomfortable about some of the things related to our data uh, in recent weeks. And I've, I've made the commitment as governor, I will investigate all of those and I'll always be honest and transparent with taxpayers and citizens about where their data is. Fantastic. I, I really like that because our data, our privacy, our Fourth Amendment right is huge. We're gonna take a short break and we're gonna be right back. Thank you. Welcome back to the Loving Liberty Network. We're so happy to have you join us. We are talking to gubernatorial candidate, Thomas Wright, and we have really appreciated having you with us, Thomas. We don't have a lot more time, so we're gonna jump to a few more questions and some different topics. So I don't know if you're aware because you're not a politician and you haven't been at the legislature, but Utah passed, uh, finally passed a stand your ground bill, which means that you do not, you're not required if your life or your home is being threatened, you're not required to retreat, that you can stand your ground and defend yourself. How do you feel about that bill? Uh, which one? I'm sorry, you broke up just a little bit on that. I'm so sorry about the stand your ground bill saying that you do yeah. not have to retreat if you're being threatened, that you can stand your ground. You yeah. do not have to retreat. You can stand and defend yourself. Yeah, no, I mean, look, this is this is this is who we are as Americans, right? Individual rights, freedom, liberty, the ability to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves and government's responsibility to protect our inalienable rights. It's so important that we educate our children and we remind ourselves continually that our inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, our right to choose, those all come from our maker, from God. And we need to make sure that government is protecting those and that no one's encroaching on those and nobody is taking those away from us. Sometimes uh, we fall into the trap in society of thinking government created those rights, but they didn't. Government's job is to protect those rights so that they're not taken away from people. So, you know, that's that's where I stand on that. And 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 so, yeah, sometimes, you, you know, you have to assert those rights, but that's why we have them. Well, it's so refreshing to hear someone running for office talk about our rights coming from our creator, from God. Mm -hmm. Um, so does that mean that you would sign the constitutional carry, the right for a citizen to constitutionally carry? Would you sign that or veto it? Well, I'm going to be clear, but let's let's start at the beginning of this, because I don't think a lot of people understand this. In the state okay. of Utah right now, you have the right to open carry. You can carry a weapon openly and walk around with it. That's legal in the state of Utah, and it has been for a long time. And I, as far as I'm aware, that hasn't been a huge challenge with that. The minute that you conceal no, a weapon, been a problem. it's never been a problem. So now the minute you conceal a weapon and you put a coat over it or you put it in your vest or you conceal it, then you're required in the state of Utah to get a concealed weapons permit. And the concealed weapons permit is just really a training class, as I see it, that, uh, that, that if you get pulled over, how do you disclose that to a police officer so there's not an issue? 
Where can you carry? Where can you not carry? What can you do? And it's a training exercise. It reminds me a lot of when I was a young man and my father said, hey, I want to take you hunting, but you have to take hunter safety. And that was a great course. I learned a lot about safely handing a firearm over a fence and never climbing over a fence with it in my hand. Those were all things that I that were valuable to me when I was out with my brothers and we avoided accidents because we had that training. And I, and I liked that training. And that's what the concealed weapons permit is. I think that's working in the state of Utah as well. Now, you're talking about taking it to the next level and that's saying, can, you, can we conceal a weapon and not have to get the concealed weapons permit? I think it's fine for it to be optional because I think there are a lot of people that understand the safety and they, they know how to be a responsible gun carrying individual. And, and so I would, I would have signed that bill in 2013. And so I just to directly answer your question, because I think there are people out there, but I still think people that are new to uh, firearms should, should be encouraged and should be made available taking a course so they can train themselves. It keeps us all safe. Uh, but, but that's where I stand on that particular issue. We have open carry. Uh, and so, you know, it's just a natural evolution. I couldn't agree more. I resent that I have to ask the government permission to conceal my weapon. I resent that suddenly my gun is sitting on my seat and my sweater falls over on it when I step on my brakes. And I just turned myself into a criminal with, you know, no action at all. I love training. I have done remember that. that case where somebody put a coat on, they yes. had open carry, they put a jacket on, now suddenly it was concealed and there was a big to-do about that. Look, right. we, we want to be smart, right? We're big Second right. Amendment people. We want people to be safe in society. We understand uh, the challenges related to guns and the gun violence that's in our society. But, but we're just asserting that taking away law-abiding, uh, responsible citizens' rights isn't the way to curb that. There's other ways to curb those problems. And you're so right about training. I mean, I really believe that most anybody, anybody that wants to use a firearm, open carry or concealed, should definitely get some training and get some experience. Yeah, and that, that's what we're saying with the concealed permit. I, I watched my son and daughter who hunt with me go through the hunter safety program in the last few years online. I took them to their field test at a shooting range. And it was great to watch them receive some formal training from somebody other than their dad. You know, they always listen to somebody other than their dad a lot more carefully. But, but I, I felt good about that process and the fact that they needed to get hunter safety to apply for a hunting permit is keeping people safe and it's it's training and it's I, I didn't view it as a huge overreach. I don't view the, the concealed weapons as a huge over overreach. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we just have to I think it's working. We just all have to work together and find common ground on these issues. OK, so I don't know if you're aware this year, 2020, in the legislative session, they passed a bill HB 260. And it made it so that the information, our private personal information, it, that is, a, is made available to law enforcement, the law enforcement has been sharing that with the U of U for research purposes. And they're saying, the U of U is of course saying, we really need this information. And they've been doing it for, I don't know how long, but a long time. It's just, they didn't have our permission, nor did we have our, our not, we didn't even know that they were doing that. So what this bill did is it made it, they put into code that the information that our law enforcement has is shared with the U of U. I'd like to know how you feel about that bill. And yeah. Like I said it earlier, anytime the state is selling or 
moving our private information. We need to know about it. There needs to be full disclosure and transparency. And I've been really uncomfortable with a lot of the things that have come out in recent weeks about the lack of protection of our private data at the DMV, doing facial recognition scans without our permission, our kid, you know, I got kids that are minors and they've been providing those pictures without my consent or knowledge. And I, I think that's improper. I'm not supportive of that. And I, I've made it clear as governor, I will look into wherever the data is being moved or sold, and that will be transparently disclosed to the citizens and the legislature, the people who are elected by the people to represent the people in our republic should be the ones making the decision on whether that should happen or not. It shouldn't be one government agency, an unelected bureaucrat, or even a governor by executive order. It should never be happening like that. We have a government that has checks and balances and branches of government that protect the people and they need to be used. And we need to be making sure that everything is transparent. Okay, super. Okay, um, I don't know if you have time for one more question or you sure. do need Let's to do one more, why not? Okay. I'm having a good time with you it's guys. A, yep. It's a hot one, of course. So where do you stand on the 2019 tax reform bill? Yeah, good one. Um, so in the tax reform bill in 2019, there were three things that I heard people really liked and there were three things that people didn't like. The three things they liked was the cut of the income tax from 4.95 to 4.66. Everybody wants an income tax cut. That was positive. The second was cutting the taxes on Social Security for seniors who are on fixed incomes. That was positive. And the third was restoring the dependent exemption because when Trump changed the tax code federally, our state code got out of line. So citizens in this state for two years now have not been able to take the dependent exemption. That's costing a family of four a lot of money every year. We want to make sure they're taking that exemption. So those are the things that were good in the bill, right? It had good things in it. But then there were three things that overrode those and the citizens really spoke out. Number one was the sales tax on food. And I will just say, if it's wrong to tax food at 4.875, it's wrong to tax it at 1.75. So that was the driving force. We heard from Utahns that they view that as a regressive tax, that it's not fair to lower income families. And they were just uncomfortable with it. And I heard their voice loud and clear, as governor, I will fight to eliminate the sales tax on unprepared food. And that was one. The second was the sales tax or the gas tax. It was closing the loophole on wholesalers of petroleum, but they just pass on that cost. So it's really just a tax increase. People were uncomfortable with that. And that disproportionately hits rural Utah. Uh, because their food has to be transported. You raise the tax on food and then you raise the gas tax. That's disproportionately hurting rural Utah. And it did, then people had a hard time with that. And the final part of the tax reform bill that they struggled with was the sales tax on services. Anytime it looks like you're picking winners and losers, some people are paying and some aren't, and it looks arbitrary or that special interests were involved, that's very challenging for people to accept. So all in all, the tax reform bill had three things that were good, three that were bad. What we learned, Elaine, is omnibus bills that have all of these things in them are bad. We can't do omnibus bills. And, and we, we shouldn't be doing them in special session. As governor, what I have said is we will look at the tax code every year and we will make incremental changes so that every 10 years we don't try to do it all at once and have the challenges that we have. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you spending time being with us. We know you're super busy. You've got a huge campaign to run and wish you all the best. Thank, Thank you for you having so me for on. Being here. Tom's right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a break. We will be back in just a moment to finish our discussion.
Welcome back. This is the Loving Liberty Network. We are so happy to have you join us. This is the Liberty Mom Show. Liberty Moms are the defenders of the home front. We are the real secretaries of defense for our children, our families, and our communities. We're so happy to have you join us. We had a great discussion with candidate Thomas Wright, running for governor of the state of Utah. And, you know, we, we're living in really interesting times. We hear often people say we're living in interesting times. I consider that an understatement. While we are living in times of trouble and it's actually people are living, a lot of people are living in a time of fear. A lot of people are very scared of what is going on right now. I would like people to remember that while that is true, we're also living in a time of miracles. We're living in a time of great promise and great blessings. It's very easy to get discouraged right now, especially when people are being isolated and some people are afraid, some people are very lonely, and some people are upset because they see our liberties being taken from us. And I just wanted to kind of put things in perspective a little bit. During the Revolutionary War, only 12 to 20% of the people were engaged. Only 12% of Americans were in favor of the Revolutionary War. And those that did got engaged. They made sacrifices and they created the most amazing country the world has ever seen. And in doing that, they didn't just do it for themselves, and they were the only ones to receive the benefits for that, but they did it for everyone, and everyone benefited from it. And not only did everyone at the time benefit from it that lived, everyone since that time has benefited from it. Many of the men left their homes, they left their farms, they left their jobs, they left their families to go and fight. Many of the women, there were women who actually decided, dressed up like men and decided they wanted to go. They wanted liberty so much. The love of liberty was so strong in these people that they wanted to do whatever they could to make it happen. And the women were very willing and happy and wanted to contribute and to help. And one of the biggest problems at the time of the revolution They had spent 11 years working, negotiating with the British, trying to make amends, trying to make things work, um, and that obviously didn't. They needed ammunition. They needed men, and they needed fighters. They needed an army, and they needed ammunition. And so the women, I love this because I have a lot of family heirlooms. I have a lot of things that are really precious to me because they're not just things, but they're things that mean a lot to me because they were given to me by my mom or my grandmother, great grandmother. But these women took these, their silver and their pewter, their family treasures, their family heirlooms, they melted them down and they melted them into bullets so that their men at war on the front would have ammunition to fight with. And I just wanted to just share a little bit about the Battle of Ticonderoga, because after the Battle of Lexington and the Battle of Concord, Congress had to, they met and decided, what's our next step? What are we going to do next? And every town started to organize their armies and organize their, their Minutemen and their people together because they knew at that point they were going to have to go to war. But in Vermont, there was, which is known as the Green Mountain State for good reason. That is where Colonel Ethan Allen lived. 
And he was the colonel of the people there, and they called themselves the Green Mountain Boys, even though a lot of them were men. And this, this particular battle happened on the very same day that the Continental Congress appointed George Washington, Washington to be the commander in chief over the Continental Army. So Ethan Allen, he thought, okay, we've got to do something. And he had this idea to do a surprise attack on Fort Ticonderoga that the British had gone in and taken over. And so he had his men working through the night. They got together and they went in the darkness of night and they decided to do a surprise attack on Fort Ticonderoga. And the, when they got there, it was pitch dark. The only people that were awake were the sentries. So that was pretty easy to get through and get past them. They knew time was of the essence. They didn't want to alarm. So they took out the sentries and then Alan rushed in and his men rushed into the fort and they went right to the sleeping quarters of the commander and which was Commander Gates. And so, um, Ethan Allen, with a voice like thunder, he pounded on the door and he said, I demand you surrender this instant, this fort to us. Now, of course, the commander was sound asleep. He hears this banging on his door, this loud voice of thunder. He was scared to death. He half asleep. He got half dressed and he threw open the door and he said, by whose authority do you and Ethan Allen interrupted him and he said, in the name of the great Jehovah and the Continental Congress of these United States, I command you to surrender. No resistance was given. The commander just surrendered over the fort at that time and they were able to take back control of the Fort Ticonderoga and of course, that is also where the British had cashed away many cannons and a great deal of ammunition, which is exactly what the Continental Army needed at that time. So they were able to get all this ammunition and get these cannons, and they were able to do this without one single life being shed, either on the British side or on the American side, the colonist side. And I just think I love that story because it reminds me of and reminds us of by whose authority do we have our liberty? It is by the great Jehovah and that miracles can and do happen. And while we're living at this time, I invite everyone to in your own way with the power that you have to make it known that you love liberty. We have this opportunity to stand for liberty, to stand up for liberty, and to stand against the, um, the forces that are taking our liberties, well-intended they may be. Liberty has always been taken in the name of for your safety. And we just need to go back to the Constitution. We need to say, where does the governor of any state get the power to shut down businesses? 
Where does the governor get the power to take these liberties away from people and tell them what they have to do? Never in all of history have we ever quarantined the healthy. That is not a constitutional power that any governor or president has. We don't quarantine the healthy. Yes, you quarantine the sick to protect the healthy and to protect the sick. So we want to protect the lives of every single individual and we can do that constitutionally with balance. We've always protect, we wanna protect everybody and that can happen. We protect the sick by quarantining them. We also protect the healthy. So we want to go back to our constitution, both of our national constitution and each state constitution, because they give us such great tools and powers to make sure that there is this balance in protecting everyone and their liberties. What has happened is we've given a lot of power and authority to the local county health departments that are unelected people that live with blinders on because they only see the physical health. They're not looking at the whole picture. And I will tell you that more people throughout history have died from medical neglect and from poverty, from starvation than have ever died of disease. So we've got to be very careful that we don't shut down our, our economy, shut down people's right to work, that we don't take away from people their, their right to live and their right to pursue their happiness. And again, we can do it with balance. It is possible and we have done it for generations. And so I invite you to, to get involved and to stand up and just talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends, call your governors and explain you appreciate that their intentions are pure. They're trying to do the right thing, but they don't actually have the power to shut down businesses. Call your health departments, invite them, explain to them kindly, respectfully, in respectful manners and explain to them that there are other ways for people to get sick or to die. There's other ways to lose life besides coronavirus, besides COVID-19. And we know that throughout history, those other ways are so much more permeable and they're more, much more longer lasting. We will lose many, many lives through the tactics that are being taken right now. So I hope that you will take some measures and I just want to remind all of us that we are the defenders of our liberty. Have a beautiful day. Thank you.